0: Well, good morning. Glad to see everyone. I know I already said that once, but I am glad to see everyone here. Uh, For those of you who are new, uh, welcome. My name is Jamie. I'm a pastor here, and I'm happy that you are here with us. Uh, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but it is important to me. If you are a guest with us, if this is your first time, then um, we have a free gift in the back of the foyer. It's just a little book we like to give things away. So um, make sure that before you leave, you grab one of those books uh, from the back of the foyer. So All right, starting a new series this morning. If you didn't notice by the gibberish behind me, what you see behind me is not actually gibberish. Uh, It is the Greek word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church. Whenever in, in the New Testament you see the word church, that's the word that appears in the original language. And so we're going to be doing, Lord willing, three weeks on the church. What is the church? Uh, we're gonna. Here, here's how I, I've set this up. This is how I feel like the Lord wants us to go with this. Week one, uh, we're going to do what is the church, kind of get some parameters about what is church in general. Then next week, who is the church, who makes up the church? And then in the third week, Lord willing, will be Palm Sunday, we'll do uh, why is the church, kind of a missional sort of uh, sermon then. So this is going to be like the first real topical sermon. Uh, book that, or topical series that I've I've done. Uh, in fact, um, Jessica came up to me at the beginning of service. She was kind of like um, she was looking at she was looking at the program. She's like, "So, what what book are we in?" Which I was like, "That's awesome, okay." Because we, de- we generally just pick a book and just kind of go uh, w- word by word, verse by verse, which is what we're going to do after Easter. But for now, we're going to do a topical uh, a topical series. That's not my comfort zone. Uh, so I reached out to a couple of friends of mine and asked for some help, asked for some prayer. They gave me some help and kind of put this together. So listen, if this lands on its face, I'll give you their names afterwards and and you can blame them for it. But, uh, no, this, this should be good. I am excited about preaching this. If you have a Bible, uh, point your Bible to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. Point your Bible there. If you're a millennial and forgot to charge your Bible, then there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page five something, 567 in the pew Bible. Be reading from the ESV because it's the best one. All right. Let's pray. Matthew 16. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word, to study your word. Lord, you didn't gather these people here this morning to hear my words. I might be able to inspire them or make them feel nice inside, but your words are the words of eternal life. So would you you speak that to us this morning? Give to us the words of eternal life and allow us To cling to your word. So we know what this is that we're doing right now and why we're doing it. For your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, Cornerstone said, Amen. Ecclesia, verse Matthew chapter 16. Let's read verse 13 and following, down to verse 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term for himself. Verse 14. And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, Shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. The reason I'm starting here, Matthew 16, is because that word ecclesia, this is the first time it appears in, in the New Testament. So we want to get our bearings from the Lord Jesus on what is the church. When you survey the New Testament on on church, on the subject of church, you learn that the church is the means through which God's mission is being fulfilled on the earth. He sends His church out to preach the gospel. It is the entity that Jesus created to advance the gospel, and it is um, a herald of God's message of grace, everywhere it goes. You learn that the church is beautiful and wonderful, joy-inspiring, life-giving. It's an assembly of God's people who treasure Christ above all. It is a safe place. It's a harbor in a storm. It's a beacon of light in the dark. It's a place filled with laughter and joy and peace. More than anything, the church is the place where God's people demonstrate God's glory through a marvelous thing called love. All that's true. Yet, I know that for many of us in here, that's not been your experience with the church. I know because I've heard your stories. And my heart is broken when I hear them. Not just because your heart is broken, but because I relate I grew up in church. I'm a PK, pastor's kid. Being a PK, you kind of have an inside track to sort of the underbelly of church ministry. So, that means that you get to sit in the back seat and and overhear your parents talking about some of the hurts and the wounds and the burdens of the people they serve. Being a PK means that you sort of get to see from the inside this um, sometimes horrible thing called church politics. Being a PK means that you, you, get, to, you get to see your, your dad cry when someone in the church wounds him. Being a PK means that you, you, you get to wake up early in the morning and you get to hear your dad already awake interceding for his people. Being a PK means that you get to go through some very not fun things related to leadership in the church. And so my testimony, when you, when you tell me that, you might say that the church is joy-filled and full of laughter and inspiring place, that it's a harbor and it's a safe place, that's just not my experience. I feel you. My family has been through More than one church split, and we've been on the inside. We've uh, been through situations where we were asked to leave leadership. Don't understand why. Deep, lasting friendships were severed. Just bringing up tons of questions. One particular situation nearly devastated my family when I was growing up. Later, when Sarah and I were in ministry, we were in leadership in a in a church situation where we, we were just brought into a room and um, some, some secret sin was letting up you know, kind of brought to the table and we kind of learned of a situation. And then just coincidentally, a few weeks later we were asked to step down and to leave. And we were just wondering what what did we do wrong? And that hurts. Those friendships that you build, the people that you serve, it hurts. And it didn't come across to me as a place of safety, a place of joy and laughter. It hurt. But you know, I, I thank the Lord. Because even though probably more than most people, I have reasons to get cynical about church. More than most, I probably have reasons to, to turn my back on the institution of organized Christianity. I appreciate very much that the Lord never allowed my heart to become cynical toward his, his bride. The Lord shielded and protected my heart, and I still love His church. As broken and as mean and as rough as she can be, She's still beautiful in my heart. And I can't attribute that to anything except for the Lord's grace. So when you say, I don't think the church is joy-inspiring and and peace-filled, I get it. I'm with you. I hear you. But let me just humbly submit to you that the reason maybe that you've allowed bitterness to creep up in your heart that came from pain Maybe the reason that you've allowed disappointment in your life and through the church to turn to cynicism is because you have an erroneous view of what the church is. So this morning, I want to humbly place before you what I believe the Scripture teaches about what the church is, and you decide whether cynicism is justified. So I hope that I hope that, that that's, that's my prayer this morning, is that just because there's a couple of misfires that you're not going to get gun-shy from the church. In a couple of weeks, Cornerstone Piqua will be one year old. March 15th, that was the first Sunday we had. Isn't that amazing? It was the first Sunday. And... You may have been coming here for a number of months. You may have been coming here and, you know, you haven't been offended. You haven't been, you know, hurt. You haven't been disappointed at all. And so you're kind of like, I'm not really sure what you're talking. Well, here's what I would say. This is the reason why you haven't been offended or disappointed. It's because you haven't been here long enough. That's the only reason, Okay. Because I, can, I can't make you a whole lot of promises about what Cornerstone Pickle will do for you and, and be to you. But one thing I can promise is that at one point or another, Brent and I will let you down. I promise. Not intentionally. We won't do this intentionally. I, as your pastor, will let you down. And the reason is I'm not Jesus. I'm just an under-shepherd. He's the over-shepherd and I'm going to let you down, and I'm going to offend you, and I'm going to not do something the way you think it should be done, and and you're going to get upset. Furthermore, you are going to offend those around you. You're going to be offended by those around. You're not just going to be offended by me, but you're going to be offended by one another. That's what happens. The reason is because church is not a building. Church is a people, and people are sinners, and sinners sin against other sinners. Look, church isn't a building. If church were, nobody, it's not like nobody's coming in here, because church is a building. It's not like you're coming in here and being like, you know what, dang it, projector, last week you let me down. You stopped in the middle of my sermon, and you really disappointed me. I'm offended by you, projector, throwing you out. That's not, that's not what happens. Last week, the projector goes bad. This week, we put a bulb in it. It works again. Nobody, you don't get offended at your water heater when it breaks down. You just go get another one or you get it repaired, you get it fixed. Church is not a building, it's a people. And people aren't fixed in the same way. You can't just take an old bad part out and stick a new one in. Believe me, I've tried. It doesn't work. You have to, it takes time. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. I had an old pastor one time who was fond of saying, That people are the only thing God created that doesn't do what God created it to do. You know, because he created an oak tree and an oak tree just does what an oak tree does. It just grows up and then dies and makes more oak trees. It's not like one day the oak tree wakes up and it's like, you know what? I'd rather be an orange tree. It tries really hard to be an orange tree and sprout oranges. It just, foxes just do what foxes do. There's nobody in the animal kingdom looking for gender reassignment surgery they're not having existential crises they're just going through that's they do what they're supposed to do you and i we are the ones who get sinned against you and i are the ones who are broken you and i are the ones who have a bad idea what our life is supposed to look like and so we're the ones who don't do what god has made us to do so we expect grace from everyone and refuse it to anyone The reality is that you and I are guilty of committing treason against our Creator by disobeying Him and committing sin. And we despise His Lordship over our life, and our sin that we've incurred in our life is totally incompatible with our God. But God, rather than destroying us in our sin, he sent his son to to take the penalty as a substitution in our place to bear the penalty for our sin. And he died on the cross for our sin so that God can give you forgiveness. But God didn't just give you forgiveness. He also gave you a family. He gave you forgiveness, and then he gave you a family. His family. It's called the church. So, once you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you become a member of the church universal. It's like you're a member of God's family, God's church. But then the next step is to become a member of the church local, the local body of believers. So, what is the local church? The church local is a collection of sinners saved by grace whom God has used to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God does this in basically two ways. There's, he does this in a lot of ways, but both, all the ways fall under two basic headings. The gospel is advanced through the church of Jesus Christ under two main, in two main ways. One is the gospel is made audible, and the gospel is made visible. The gospel is made audible through the proclamation of the gospel, and the gospel is made visible. So what we're going to do for the rest of our time together this morning is we're going to look at those two things, the gospel audible and the gospel made visible. Matthew 16 again. Jesus, verse 13, says, who who do the people say that I am? And they answer him with some interesting answers. Some people say, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Because at this point, John the Baptist is already dead. His head lobbed off. And they say, you're John the Baptist he's come back to life. That's what the people say, that you got, because maybe, maybe because you yell a lot. That's what John the Baptist did, so that's what they see in you. They're like, oh, that's like John the Baptist. Some people also say that he's Elijah. Some people say, Jesus, you're like Elijah. I don't know why, maybe because maybe he calls down miracles from heaven or something. Some other people say that you're Jeremiah. I don't know why, maybe because he cried a lot, but you're Jeremiah. That's one of the reputations that Jesus gets. He's Jeremiah. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says, yeah, but, Who do you say I am? That question Jesus asked of the disciples is the most important question any person has ever asked of anyone. Who do you say I am? It's the most important question you'll ever ask. You'll ever answer, rather. You're answering that question right now, coming to church on a Sunday morning. There's plenty of other things you could be doing. Who do you say I am? And Peter answers in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you answer with the Apostle Peter in the same way and really believe that that's true, then that will, that will determine every aspect of your life. The most important question you'll ever answer is not who you're going to marry, It's not how many kids you're going to have. It's not what career path you're going to take. It's not who you're going to vote for in November. That's not the most important question. The most important question is, who is Jesus? And if you answer like Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are God in the flesh. If that's your answer, then that determines your eternal destiny. It also determines what you do with your life. It determines who you'll marry. It determines how many kids you'll have. It determines where you're going to go to work. It determines who you're going to vote for. Everything is determined by how you answer, who do you say that I am? If he is the Christ, then that means that your life is not about your happiness. It's about his glory. In his mission and his purpose. Because how many of us say, You are the Christ, Son of the living God, with our mouths, but live differently with our lives? Verse 17. Jesus says to Peter, He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, a whole lot of theological ink has been spilled on what Jesus meant by that word rock. It's a play on words. The word rock in the original language sounded like Peter, and so Jesus is, is using a play on words. So, what is this rock that Jesus speaks of? The Roman Catholic Church, God bless them, they maintain that the rock Jesus refers to in Matthew 16 here is Peter, the man Peter. And by implication, the, the kind of lineage of Peter, his apostolic succession, if you will. So, the the... The papal authority, the the pope. So the, the, the Roman Catholic Church maintains that Peter was the first pope and then those that came after him. So Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. On this man, I will build my church. Evangelicalism does not view this verse in that way. We view it differently. We view... See, so, so here's, here's my problem with it being Peter the man. Because basically, if he's saying... Uh, on this rock, on you, the man, Peter, I build my church, then what Jesus is saying is I came from heaven into this world. I lived a sinless life to give myself as a perfect offering on the cross, pay the atonement for your sin so that I can establish my church on a mortal man who just in a few verses I'm going to call Satan. So I don't think Jesus meant... On this rock, the man, Peter. The rock that Jesus is referring to here is, I believe, the revelation of the identity of Christ that was given to Peter. Meaning, I mean, if you keep Jesus' statement into context here, on this rock refers to, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. The revelation that God gave to Peter about who Jesus is, is the rock, the foundation upon which Jesus is building his church. He is building his church on himself. You are the Christ. And on that rock, that's the foundation of the church. That is the cornerstone of the church. So that means the most important thing that we do as a local church is to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The most important thing, the most foundational thing upon which Jesus is building His church is the identity of Christ. And so as a local church, that means the most important thing that we do is proclaim the identity of Christ. So therefore, we make the declaration to the world about who God is in Christ. We do that to one another. We do that to uh, our communities. We do that to the city. We do that to the world. And this is why Brent and I are committed to keeping the first pillar of this church, gospel-centered preaching. So whatever we do, Whatever ministry looks like in five years, in ten years, Lord willing, in thirty years, gospel-centered preaching will be primary, first, foremost at all times. Whatever we do, if we fail to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only do you as the congregation have the responsibility to remove us but to bring us back and align us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of it every Sunday. Whatever is behind this pulpit must always be the gospel of Jesus. If we are not preaching the gospel, we are not a church. This issue becomes extraordinarily important in the day we live. Because the question can be asked, what is a church And you can answer it very differently today through technology than you could at any other time in church history. When Peter stood up in Acts 2, just in a moment we're going to read this, when Peter stood up in Acts 2, he probably didn't have in his mind, there was a day coming in a couple thousand years when people all over the world could view it on a tablet about this big. So is the church, you sitting at home on your iPad, on your couch watching and listening to preaching, is that church? A couple of guys getting together in a bar and having a drink and talking about Jesus. Is that church? We have to answer questions like this now. Can you do multi-site? If there's no preacher behind a pulpit preaching live, it's just on a big screen. Is that church? We just, we just, we're, we just live in a day when you've got to answer these questions. So it's kind of important to know what it is. So the first thing the church does is make the gospel heard, the gospel audible. The next thing we do is we make the gospel visible. I invite you to point your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, that's page 629 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they, that'd be the first church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And, And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So after Jesus went to the cross and resurrected from the dead he ascended into heaven and told his disciples you guys chill just wait for a little bit and the holy spirit will come and he will fill you and he will empower you to preach the gospel in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and all across the world so then the apostles gathered together about 120 of them into a room and they were praying and on the day of pentecost the holy spirit came and filled them and empowered them to preach the gospel. He gave them, some of them, the ability to speak a different language and to tell of the wonders of God in a different language. And so they left that room and they went to all these people who spoke different languages and they were able to understand and speak the gospel to others. And then Peter stood up and he preached. You're starting to get this. The most important thing we do is preach. The first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit falls on the church is they preach, and then Peter gets up and he preaches. So he preaches the gospel. And then the church goes from about 120 people to 3,000 in one day. Talk about logistics. Like, where, where in the world are you going to meet? You go from being like a, 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 an average sized church to a mega church in one day. Talk about servant teams. It took me like nine months to get servant teams to just start here at this church. He's got 3,000 people. We're like 70. So I don't even know how you you begin to do that, but the church grew. And then we read here at the back end of Acts 2 that as they're meeting, they're starting to meet regularly. And I don't know how many people stuck around. I don't know how many people, some of them left, some of them stuck around. I don't know how big his church is, but here's what I do know. The Lord added to the church every day. Every single day, people were becoming Christians and the gospel became visible. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, explains to us what this new entity, this new church, was built on. As they started, as the apostles started gathering together, starting to figure out what it meant to be church. The author of, of Acts, Luke, explains to us, they did it and they built it on at least five things. Okay, So if you're following along in your, in, your, in, your, in your program, you can fill this out as we go along. At least five things in verse 42 through 47. There may have been more, and you may be able to tease out of these verses more, but at least these five things will be there. The first thing in verse 42, uh, the apostles' teaching, preaching. There it is again, preaching. The first thing they did was get together and hear preaching. It's pretty important. The second thing that they built this new church on was koinonia, the fellowship. You can write in there, fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. means close mutual association. The early church was in each other's lives. They were in each other's business. Those of you who like to keep your dirty laundry to yourself might not have liked going to the early church. They knew each other's dirty laundry. They knew each other's business. They had close mutual association. They fellowshiped together. Some of us like to keep our weaknesses hidden. We don't like to share where we're struggling. We don't like to reach out to others and let them know, man, I'm struggling with this in my life. And and I don't know why that is. Maybe we just like, we don't want to appear weak to others. Maybe because you think you're like impervious to weakness because Batman wasn't weak. I'm not going to be weak. But you're not Batman. You're you. And you need a church family to get through this. They had close mutual association. They had fellowship. The third thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. They ate meals together. Now, I suppose you could infer communion, but I think verse 46 seems to indicate that probably meant they shared meals. Like they ate food together. So, what's the spiritual meaning behind that, Pastor? (laughs) They had food together. That's what it means. There's no spiritual meaning behind it. Just They ate together. One guy called another guy and said, you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. You want to eat? All right. And they ate together. That's what it means spiritually. They had food. They broke bread together. There's something about getting together and eating together, which kind of creates that, that relationship together. It fosters communication. It was important to them. This, the, the, what is it? Number four. The fourth thing they did. They prayed together. They got together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. I find it very interesting that in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you see prayer is such a communal thing. They pray together. They get together and pray. It was was a priority. And the last thing they devoted themselves to was shared resources. Shared resources. They were a tight community there in Jerusalem. And maybe they were a church of 1,000, 2,000. I don't know how many they were. Maybe all 3,000 people stuck around. I don't know. I know some of them left. But they were a church that met one another's needs they brought resources together and they shared them with one here's what happens so some of you might not might not like this god saved people and he brought them to the church some of the people that god saved were not self-made self-sufficient wealthy middle-class people with nice cars and big smiles some of the people god saved came to the church and they couldn't balance a checkbook and they weren't good with money and They made very bad financial decisions, and they bought things they couldn't afford, and they they have credit cards. They think that's free money, but they came to the church, and they had needs, or somebody's husband died, and she she needed help, so the early church looked at them as family, and they met their needs. It's an important part of what church is. This week, I had the pleasure of receiving... Uh, an envelope, a sealed envelope full of resources that I was able to give to someone in the church who's in financial need. It's a beautiful thing. It's the church family being able to meet one another's needs. They shared resources. And Luke tells us here in verse 47 that they gained favor with the people. The gospel... Was made visible. The gospel became visible in the way in which God's people dealt with one another selflessly, joyfully, lovingly, missionally. Which brings me to my final point this morning. Turn to John chapter 13. This is how the gospel becomes visible. John 13, beginning at 34. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another by this, the gospel becomes visible. By the way you love one another, that's how the gospel becomes visible to those outside the church. You love others like Jesus loved you. So what is love? How do we define love? If we're to demonstrate to one another the sort of love That Jesus is speaking of here in John 13, how do we define love? The New Testament defines love like this. I'll read it to you in 1 John 3.16. It says this, By this we know love. This is how you know love. This is the quality of love Jesus is referring to. That He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our our lives for the brothers. So Jesus is saying... This is how the world knows that you are mine. They know that you, are, you belong to me, is the way that you love one another in the way in which I have loved you. In the way that I have laid my life down for the brothers, you are to lay your life down for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what love looks like. And love is forged in the furnace of the fellowship of God's people. Love is forged in the furnace of the fellowship of God's people. You come here and you give yourself self-sacrificing love for your brothers and sisters. The kind of love that Jesus showed you is what he expects you to show. Not Not the kind of love that deserving people get because they deserve it. They do something that deserves love. That's not the kind of love I'm talking about because the kind of love I'm talking about is the kind of love that Jesus showed you when you didn't deserve his love and he gave it to you anyway. The sort of love I'm talking about, the sort of love that will cause the the outsiders to kind of pique their interest is the sort of love that you give to another person who doesn't deserve love. They didn't do something lovely and you love them because the thing they did was lovely. Lovely. They did something very unlovely and you love them anyway because that's the kind of love Jesus showed to you. And you forgive because you've been forgiven because God in Christ forgave you. That's Christ-like love. For the believer, church family functions as, as, as a sort of crucible. It's where you come to learn how to love, how to lay down your life for another, how to give grace as you've received it, how to forgive because you've been forgiven. These things cannot be learned on their own in isolation by listening to a sermon on an iPad on your couch. It doesn't work without community. It doesn't work without fellowship. You might be able to take some juice and some crackers and serve yourself communion, but you're still not a church unless people gather and live in community together and serve one another and give their lives for one another. I, I say it like this all the time. You, you, you have to, you cannot, some of the fruits of the Spirit do not get worked in your life until you have suffering that comes from another person. You have to go into a a place where you can rub shoulders with other sinners so that you can learn to be patient with people. You can't learn to have long suffering unless you have to suffer for something for a long time. You don't learn patience unless there's some reason to be patient. Those of us who have been blessed with children, how many of you know children aren't born selfless and patient? Those are things you have to learn. Take four of those kids in the nursery. Take four of them, put them in a room with three Twinkies and close the door. Watch what happens. <laughs> I promise you, you won't hear phrases like, no, no, you first. <laughs> no, no, I just ate. Seriously, though, go ahead. No, no, no. No, my mom doesn't like me when I eat fruit or, you know, candy before my meal. I, I'm just. You go ahead. No, what you're going to see is three kids with three Twinkies in three corners, like choking them down as fast as they possibly can. Well, one of them is like bawling in the middle of the room. That's what you're going to see. Kids don't learn selflessness on their own. It has to be taught to them. It's the same thing with us. Jesus uses the metaphor of when you become a Christian, it's like being born again. John 3, right? Unless you're born again. And it's a very interesting metaphor. I mean, it has a lot of implications. Not least among them is the fact that I think it's a perfect metaphor for conversion. Because when you're, when you're born, I mean, you didn't choose to be born. It just happened, right? Like, nobody, nobody was there being like, good job, baby, getting through the birth canal. Well done, man. You know, was pulling for you. Great job, baby. Know what they do is they pull you out of your mom, and you're sticky, nasty, bloody, and naked. And they stick you on your mom, and they say congratulations. Well done. They congratulate the mom, not the baby. So, conversion is not like an act like, great job getting saved. You were drowning, and He saved you. So, so there's that. But you know what also? Babies have to be taught how to love, how to be patient, how to be kind, how to be selfless, how to give themselves for the sake of another. I got a 13-year-old still, still trying to get that one through, right? Still trying to like, okay. So my son goes on a like a he goes on an overnighter, and his mom has to help him pack his clothes because he's 13, and uh, she says, "Did you pack your toothbrush and toothpaste?" And he says, "No, let me go get that." And he takes the toothpaste, the whole thing, so nobody else in the family has toothpaste <laughs> because in 13-year-old you're not thinking other people, you're thinking me. That's what you're thinking. I need toothpaste. Here's toothpaste. Done. Whereas when you get a little older, you realize, you know what? Maybe some other people in this family need to brush their teeth, too. I'll get the little one instead. And so we're like, we get the little one, you know, the ones that, that you'll steal from a hotel or something. We're like squeezing it out for a couple of days. You, it, we just don't learn things. You don't become a Christian because you were holy. You became a Christian because you weren't holy, and Jesus died to make you holy. Okay? So you didn't get saved because he looked at Carol was like, damn, that guy's, I need to add him to my roster. I'm going to go save that guy. He said, he's in need. He needs needs me. I'll die on the cross so that he doesn't go to hell. So it's not because you were holy and good and had all the right things. It's because you had none of the right things, and he died for you anyway to give you all his right things. The church is the place where you learn to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, which are impossible until someone sins against you. So the person to your left and right, the person that's around you, they're going to sin against you. And the church is the place where God takes sinners and puts them so they can sin against one another so He can teach them to forgive. Forgive so he can teach them that he can heal their wounds. You're not going to learn forgiveness any other way. So what we should be asking anytime we're suffering because the church has broke our hearts or our brothers and sisters broke our hearts, the thing you should be asking is, how is God meaning to demonstrate the gospel to me in this situation? And how does God mean to demonstrate the gospel through me in this situation? So your brother, your sister in Christ, they sin against you, they neglect you, somebody says something against you, maybe you don't get chosen for a specific role or function, maybe you don't get invited to a get-together, whatever it is, intentional or non-intentional, it doesn't make any difference. It's a wound, and it hurts. It's okay, because God can use that, will use that, to show you something precious about Jesus in that moment And so that you can walk it out, you can walk through that and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ through you to those outside the church. That's how the gospel becomes visible. And that can't be learned in a book, and it can't be learned on a couch. It has to be learned in Christian community. So we need to dispel this myth that the church is where sinless people gather. It just isn't. I say this all the time. Sick people go to the hospital to get well. Broken people go to the church to get whole. Why are we offended when we see broken people in the church? That's where broken people go. This This is where I go with other broken people to find help. So here's what I'm saying in conclusion come to church. Let us sin against you. That's my message this morning. (laughs) Come to Cornerstone Piqua. Let us sin against you. We'll let you sin against us and we'll seek Jesus together and get fixed. We'll grow together in forgiveness and grace. But it's going to need you to let down your guard. I hear people all the time say, I just don't I just don't trust the church. I just don't trust it. I just don't trust the people there. Which you know that's that's just a guarded way of saying I don't trust Jesus. Because the people in the church didn't make the church. Jesus did. And if you ever go to a church where you sit there for 10 years and don't get offended or hurt or wounded They're not preaching the gospel or something. Something's broken. Something isn't working. You need to come here. Get hurt. So that you can seek the Lord together, so you can reach out to that that brother, that sister, say, you hurt me. You hurt my feelings. You broke me. But I forgive you, because I know you didn't mean to hurt me. But let's grow together. Can I pray for you? So important that is. It's so vital. And that's what the church is. It's how we grow in holiness to the glory of God. Go ahead and stand to your feet, Bev. You can come.